The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Great to have everybody along with us tonight as we start our Tuesday night show here on Beyond Reality. Looking forward to this discussion. There is a place in the Northwest Territories of Canada known as the Nahini Valley. It has been long home to legends and folklore and real live mysteries, including the mysteries of many people showing up after traveling there headless. The bodies found with no heads. Yeah, as gruesome as that sounds, that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Plus, large, 10-foot-tall, hairy, man-like creatures being seen by the native population of that area. Could they be Bigfoot? We will talk about that as well. We have a lot to talk about, in fact. Our guest, Mark McPherson, is a film director and a filmmaker, and he's working on a documentary called Secrets of Nahini, or Nahani, and we'll be talking about all of the research, plus the fact that the documentary actually involves him exploring that area. It's beautiful. Uh, looking at some of the tr- the uh, footage and the trailer for this documentary, the area is absolutely gorgeous, but it is filled with mystery and intrigue. Always good stuff here. So thank you to everybody for joining us here tonight, whether you're joining us in YouTube or on our Twitch channel. And also thank you to if you if you're listening to this as a downloaded podcast after the fact. We very much appreciate that as well. Share all of it. Subscribe to all of it. If you haven't found our YouTube channel, it's very simple. Just go to YouTube and search for J.V. Johnson. It'll come up. It'll come up. And please subscribe. There's no fee or anything. If you're on our Twitch channel, which is also a lot of fun, you can also follow for no charge, but you can subscribe as well. There is a fee for subscriptions, but it gives you some ad-free viewing and some other things which are pretty cool. Uh, But if you have an Amazon Prime account, you can just link that Prime account to the Twitch channel, and then the subscription is free. So that's kind of neat, too. A lot of people have done that. I know we have a bunch of those. They have to be renewed every month. We've had a bunch of those drop off. So if if that's the way you subscribe to the Twitch channel, go back in and resubscribe because it may have dropped off. What else do we need to talk? I think. Um, oh, I'm I'm very very pleased at the number of people that went to my Facebook page and checked out the video that I posted there, which was basically uh, analyzing the recently shown footage of what was supposed to be ghosts in Gettysburg. You all know how much I enjoy Gettysburg. It's a great place, and it's a phenomenal place for paranormal activity if you're interested in looking for it. I have many people in the paranormal community who have started with the phrase, uh, I didn't know anything about the paranormal until I went to Gettysburg. Gettysburg was is the fuel which uh, started and uh, continues to um, propel a lot of paranormal interest. But anyway, there was some footage recently circulated about Uh, Someone who had caught what they thought was a ghost in Gettysburg. So I put a video together uh, analyzing it, letting you know what I think. Most of the people who viewed it agreed with me. There are some comments in the in the in the uh, in the comment section that it's kind of kind of makes me chuckle. I could tell the people didn't watch it (laughs) because in the video, I, I very clearly state what I think it is and show the evidence of that. Uh. But uh, but some people, uh, I don't think, watched it. Maybe they saw it earlier and just commented on it. I don't know. But either way, if if you still haven't seen that and you want to check it out, go to my Facebook page. On Facebook, it's just JVJ Paranormal. Very easy to find, and that video is there. And I'd love to hear what you think about it, Uh, especially if uh, you hadn't seen it before. Leave a comment in the comment section. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Joha. That's J-O-H-A-W. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. We've got a great program for you tonight. Mark McPherson is our guest. 
He's a filmmaker and a director. He's working on a documentary called Secrets of Nahani, and it's an upcoming adventure documentary and expedition exploring the mysterious river valleys, natural wonders, and legends of haunted valleys in Nahani National Park in the Northwest Territories of Canada. Mark, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's great to have you with us tonight. Yeah, thanks, JV. Thanks for having me on. Let's get to know you a little bit before we get into the topic of the documentary that you're making. How long have you been a filmmaker? I've been a filmmaker now for probably a little over 20 years uh, on a working level. And I started off doing a lot of independent films, whether it was short dramas, horrors, documentaries, and done a lot of corporate work over the years, and then still do documentaries and music videos when I can. One thing I found about uh, filmmakers is that this next question is can sometimes be a touchy subject, but I'm a real horror film fan. In fact, I uh, I run a horror convention called Scaricon in uh, in the northeast of uh, of the country here in the United States. Um, any of the horror work that you've done, something I may have heard of? Uh, I, I, a lot of it was small, so I, I, I'm a, I live up in uh, Calgary, Canada, uh-huh. so I, uh, I did do one short film with a couple of good buddies of mine called Crossed, which was about a little short horror film about a lady who accidentally hits someone uh, in the middle of the night, doesn't know who it is, and, and it ends up being her friend, and the ghost kind of comes back to haunt her as she kind of feels something weird in the house going on. Oh, cool. Cool. Do you like horror? Is that is that a, a genre that you enjoy? Yeah, it is definitely one genre I enjoy. Uh, I, I enjoy a lot of them, but... Uh, Horror and supernatural movies and action adventures, sci-fi. I've always had a real fascination with those as well as mythology. Yeah, well, you seem to have a real curiosity. Um, I know that you kind of describe yourself as an adventurer, an explorer. Uh, you you like to seek out and, and explore and maybe even explain mysteries. That's kind of the, the genesis of this particular documentary. But where did you get that curiosity from? Is that something that just uh, you've had since you can remember? Yeah, yeah, I think just growing up, it uh, I was always really into whether it's like National Geographic uh, shows or anything about exploration in the past, and just this idea of going into places that you don't really know or understand or just completely foreign to you, and and trying to figure you know figure it out and learn about it, and and I was always just fascinated by the potential of that experience. You've been a filmmaker for about 20 years. You you mentioned you've done a di- bunch of different styles of filmmaking. The film we're going to be talking about tonight that you're making is a documentary. Is a documentary style something that you do a lot of, that you enjoy more than maybe the more uh, the fictional stuff? Yeah, it's something I've kind of grown into. I've always done them over, even from the beginning. Uh, I've done, done them over the years. Uh, I, I, would, I would tend to do a lot of nonfiction when I start out, but over the years uh, I really began to enjoy documentaries uh, a lot more. And, and of course, uh, in Canada, they have a pretty rich uh, history in documentaries. So I, I learned about that a bit when I was younger. But um, I think I just, in general, enjoy just seeing different places in the world or meeting different people. And documentaries are just a great lens to be able to kind of view all these different things with. Well, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, somebody who has a natural curiosity like yourself, and I put myself into that same category. You know, when you hear about a mystery or a phenomenon, and you just really need to get some answers, or at least try to find some. And and sometimes the 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 exploration or the effort to get the answers is uh, is more important than the actual answers themselves. But as you go through that process, you must have a real burning to tell those stories. You must have a real desire as you explore these things and uncover some answers and maybe uncover new mysteries to actually share that with people. And the documentary uh, approach probably gives you a great way to do that. Yeah, I know it definitely does. I, I think, uh, yeah, I've always had a fascination with, different stories and mysteries and uh but i think i'm like a lot of people uh i you know seeing is believing to some extent like you know i always like to believe and give some level of doubt but um it I just just to feel like if you could experience something on your own whether it's that exact thing just to have an idea like oh you know or some could some of these things be true or not especially when you're dealing with kind of the mystery and legend kind of realm now, you probably wouldn't expect uh, this to be uh, a bit of a movie chat kind of interview because the show's called Beyond Reality. But I have a real curiosity, and I love talking with filmmakers. What do you, yeah. what do you think of the state of, of the film industry right now? I mean, things have changed so much. And I'm talking even pre-COVID. I think they've changed even more since COVID. <laughs> but even pre-COVID, probably the, the 10 years leading up to that point, the, I mean, it's been a revolution in the filmmaking industry, hasn't it? 
Oh, it definitely has. I, I think, uh, you know, when I started out, uh, I was lucky enough to have a couple really close friends that were into filmmaking as well. So we kind of supported each other in that and it always gave you extra crew and actors to work with. And, uh, so you could handle everything, but, but it's definitely gotten easier. I think the technology is made accessible where pretty much anyone can be a filmmaker now, whether you have some semi-professional gear or even just use your phone. If you want to do something basic, uh, way easier than when I started out, we, used to have to rent cameras for hundreds or thousands of dollars a day. And even some of the equipment I learned on used to be cost 50,000, a hundred grand, whether it's edit suites, some of the camera lighting, but uh, with everything more accessible, I think it opens it up for a lot more people to kind of use this as a way of whether it's being creative or explore new things and, and kind of do their own thing. And I think that's really understated in the sense that, previously and maybe maybe 20 years ago i don't know what the time frame is exactly but you're right you'd have to go rent thousand dollar a day cameras to produce something that was enough had enough quality to it that people would actually want to see it now if you really needed to you could do it on your phone oh definitely yeah i mean i i look at some of the uh you know i probably made hundreds of short skits and goofy things and or mimicking movies i like with my friends and uh, they looked awful because we were literally using VHS tapes and recording VHS to VHS, which if you've ever tried that, you lose quality really fast. Right. It never looked great in the end, but it, it allowed us to experiment and practice what we were seeing in movies. And, and that was kind of how we learned until we got it. We were able to get our hands on better equipment. Yeah, and I'm I'm a real novice when it comes to this stuff, but I do work on YouTube, so I do... Uh find myself trying to teach myself how to use editing software but i can't imagine actually having to do that editing with film you know back in the days where it, you know you had a splicer and you had to actually edit things with a physical medium uh that has to have made things significantly easier as well oh definitely and you know i was lucky when i started it was just coming out of that i remember uh i was going around looking at film schools when i was first going to high school and went down to la and they were still teaching people how to do splicing film, even though it wasn't really being used as commonly as it was before. It was just getting into the digital realm. And I'm so grateful that uh, I've had to mostly just learn on digital because it is much easier to, in terms of dealing with uh, media and when you're trying to edit long-form stuff. And what about the distribution platforms? I mean, you know, previously you had to have some kind of affiliation generally with a studio or, you know, and I'm, I'm no expert in this by any means, but now we've got streaming platforms. You can self-distribute. There's a whole bunch of different ways. It seems to me that it's made it far easier in some ways to distribute a film. However, maybe the 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 reward at the other end financially isn't quite as great as it was before. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's definitely, it's easier to say, get it out there. Um, but it's it still, but it has, it does still make it challenging if you're trying to finance something like where you need a certain amount of money to actually, you know, film it and produce it in the first place. So there, but it is a, it is a lot easier now to kind of get something made, get yourself seen, at least have some examples to show that will kind of help you get some of that financing down the road. But the flip side is also a lot more competitive. You have a lot of, you know, a lot more people now have access to it. Um, so, but then, you know, it still really comes down to perseverance and people who just kind of keep with it to get better and better at it. And, uh, and, but, and, and it's also opened up in that there's a lot more spectrum in terms of what you can make, you know, it's not just Hollywood films as people, you know, like say, making stuff just for YouTube or Vimeo or, um, or, you know, now you got Netflix and all these guys who are, who are becoming more of a studio model, but, but they're willing to look at new people. And, and I, I almost think to be, a movie maker today, you're almost better to just be really good at something or have a knowledge specialty area and then make a show on that because that's what I think they're appealing at. I think uh, when I went down to USC and talked to the head of their program at the time, the guy told me, he's like, uh, he goes, yeah, it's great. You're wanting to learn this, but he'd seen it. Me and my friends were already making stuff on our own. He said, you know what? You're better to go learn something else. Go travel the world just fill yourself up with stories and things that you like, and then this will never go away. You'll be able to find a way to make it because they saw with too many people just focusing on the technical side, and then they had nothing to say. They would just copy things they'd seen and never really kind of brought new things to the table. So it's it's, it's definitely been fascinating from that side. Well, I'll tell you what. It seems to me the only thing Hollywood is interested in producing is superhero movies, and I've had enough of those <laughs> to last ten lifetimes. I'm just really, I'm really done with them. And it's you know, it's all just a, a CGI fest, and 
it really doesn't yeah. do do it for me. I I take a, an independent film from a, a a new filmmaker any day and give that a shot than to go watch one of these superhero films. Just done with them. Um, you did some work yeah. on a on a television show that focused on Scottish culture, if I'm looking for this correctly, and you actually did yeah. some work on the Loch Ness monster story. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, it was a show called Tartan TV, and uh, they were they were around for years. But yeah, it was one of my first jobs at the university. I worked with them for half a year. And they did a weekly TV series on Scotland, Scottish culture. And, and so uh, one of the stories I pitched them and got to, to direct and help produce was one on uh, searching for the Loch Ness Monster. And uh, that, that was a fascinating experience. We got to go up to Loch Ness and, uh, you know, instead of focusing on trying to find the Loch Ness, we were, I really took a chance to explore, okay, what has been done in terms of trying to search it? Has anyone ever found any? proof and and kind of learn as i went and uh it was a it was an amazing experience up there and that must have been a really cool thing obviously going there you knew what you knew what the legends were you knew what the reports were and you got to see it firsthand i understand it's a real magical place it is it is it's definitely stunning uh when you go to loch ness it's kind of it's got the little town on the one side of the loch but if you drive around it it's just stunning stunning countryside a lot of people like to go and go camping in there and, and things like that. But what's fascinating is when you go in the water, I went out with uh, a guy that kind of does tours and he had the, the sonar showing the depths of the, the lock. And he, he said it was amazing how deep it went. I'm trying to remember how deep, deep it was now, but it was easily a thousand meters. Oh, wow. Water. And, and when you look at it, it's not very wide and, and, you know, it's pretty long, but you're looking at going, how is it this deep? And he said, well, look at the highlands on the side. He goes that that angle of those highlands is the same angle beneath the surface. So, so that's how they're trying to explain how could, how could something possibly that large live in a, an area of water like that. And, and so one idea was, well, it's actually pretty deep water and, and whether there's any underground connections that somehow lead out to the sea or the, or the ocean. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so they, when I was there was back in geez, 2003 and it had been just, I think a couple of years after they'd, did a big search party who uh, actually Robin Williams was involved in trying to get going uh, where they were trying they sent a ton of boats out trying to find any proof they could. Unfortunately they didn't in the time they were there, but they really put on a mass search just to see, can we find anything with uh, current technology that whether blips or whatever, just to kind of give us a hint. But it's um, it was, uh, yeah, that was, be- that was obviously before I uh, think, I think it was before they did all that DNA testing do you remember that? I think that was rather recently where they, they took water samples, tested all the DNA they found in the water samples, figuring if there was a creature of any size in there that, you know, from from uh, f- fecal matter or other DNA shedding, they should be able to find the DNA of all the creatures that are in that lock. Uh, and they found a majority of things to be eel DNA. Yeah, no, it was definitely before that. So, yeah. Yeah. No, and I think the other thing that fascinated them was... Uh, is even looking at the latitude around the earth, they were kind of comparing it to where, you know, you had the Loch Ness stories. And then uh, where I live in Canada, uh, the next province over British Columbia, there's an area called Kelowna. And in the Okanagan, they have a thing called the Ogopogo, which very similar oh, yeah. stories mm-hmm. of a creature coming out. And then I believe there's a third one that came with it's in uh, one of the old USSR states uh, that has another similar story. It falls in that same five degree latitude band. So it's, uh, it's interesting hearing all the, you know, how these tales try, you know, try to find connections and stuff and more clues to try to justify what it could be. So. That, that is interesting. You also worked on a documentary about the discovery of a lost civilization in Peru. Tell us about that one. Yeah, so uh, so where I live in Calgary, the, the university here actually has a very strong archaeological program. And uh, one of the students doing, uh, I believe it was a doctor at the time, uh, who was Peruvian, found a the remnants of a new civilization in uh, Peru that had been kind of lost and forgotten. And so if people are familiar with the Inca Empire, these guys would have been just before them. Uh, there was a, I think it was about a four to 600 year gap where there was, they just had never found anything. And, and so there was kind of a gap in their historical records. And as they found these guys, all these artifacts, they kind of realized these guys were actually super influential to the, the Inca as well. And, and some of the things they'd always attribute to be kind of Inca culture was actually linked to this Seacan culture. It seemed to be a pretty, uh, dominant uh, empire in its day as well. So moving on to the project that we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, first of all, I need to make sure I'm even pronouncing this correctly. Is it Nahani Valley? Yes, Nahani, yeah. Nahani. Yeah. I, I, me- I mess it up too sometimes. <laughs> uh, 
But yeah, I always try to think like Han Solo. So the Hani, you, you got it right. Okay, good. Um, yeah, this is one of those places, and I, and I watched the trailer that you have uh, for the film, and I know this is this this is still a work in progress for you. But um, mm-hmm. this looks like an amazing place, and the stories that are attached with, to it are also quite amazing. Why is it that I've never heard of the Nahani Valley before? You know that 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 was the thing that hooked me uh, when I first learned about it too. It, um, a lot of people don't know about it. Even uh, you know, I, in my some of my other work with in corporate, I do some tourism work, and there's people that even work in the tourism industry in Canada that don't know about Nahani and its legends, despite it actually being a national park and a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So, um, from from what it's been told for me from the locals is that it's kind of been forgotten. There was a small period. It got a little bit famous in the early 1900s when some of these stories came out about the headless bodies. As it did air in a couple little newspapers back at the time. But uh, so, you know, talking to some of the older generation, uh, maybe some of the baby boomers, some of them say, ah, I kind of remember stuff being talked about back in the 50s or something maybe. But, but a lot of people have kind of forgotten about it since then, and, and uh, which blows me away when, yeah, you see pictures of the place and hear these stories. You're like, how could this not be more well-known? It's striking how beautiful it is, and the footage that uh, you include in in the trailer that you have on YouTube, which we will we'll direct people to so they can check it out. It's it's really strikingly beautiful. But give us a sense first of all where it is geographically. Um, you know, if somebody didn't know what you were talking about, how, how would you describe it? And then describe the terrain to us. Yeah, for sure. So it's located in northern Canada in an area called the Northwest Territories. So it'd be just above where Alberta and BC join. Uh, in the very southern tip of Northwest Territories, and which would be north of Montana and Washington State for any U.S. listeners. Um, and, and yeah, the, the area itself, it, it's a huge natural area where, uh, besides the, some of the local First Nation groups, no one's really lived in most areas. And there's some areas that, that they figured no one's even stepped a foot on because it is such a rugged, remote area. Um, it's, uh, you know, the terrain can, it's pretty rocky and jaggedy in some spots too. It's, it's hard to get into. It's one of the, you know, despite, you know, people might say, oh, it's a national park, you know, how, how remote is it? Well, you can't drive into it for one. You have to take a float plane in. Um, most people only experience it by most doing it in uh, whitewater rafting trips. So you fly in and you can do some whitewater rafting on what would be called the South Nahanni River, which has some of the world-class, uh, I think, level four, level five rapids, depending on the type of year you go. And, uh, but yeah, some of the imagery, to kind of compare it to, it'd be like some of those deep canyons you get down in Colorado or something. You get these long, windy, deeply carved canyons. Uh, the river is what they call, uh, hopefully I say this right, antecedent river, which means it was powerful enough to maintain the same course that it had before the mountains came up. So the mountains kind of formed around it. Uh, and it's, it's kind of in that whole Mackenzie River area. And it's, from what I understand, getting into the interior of this particular area is not not an easy task whatsoever. No, definitely no. Uh, um, I went up there last year, so so we've done some filming in terms of trying to do some pre production to help uh, sell this idea to broadcasters and stuff. So uh, the way I got up there is I I drove up from uh, where I live in Calgary, which is a couple thousand kilometers. And then that got me only to Fort Simpson. And then from there, I, you drive kind of further down the highway, closer to a, a small village called Nahanni Butte. But you can't get to Nahanni Butte from the road. So in the summer, you basically park at the side of the highway and take a river taxi across. Or in the winter, you got to go across the frozen river. And, and that's just kind of the entrance or gateway, you could say, to the Nahanni Valley. And, and it's usually the finishing point for people to to kind of take the river down before they get flown back to the closest airport. And so to go further in the park, uh, I had to take a float plane in. So I went to go see uh, Virginia Falls, which is kind of the crown jewel of the park. It, it's basically Niagara Falls if you take it and double it in height and size. Uh, wow. It's just stunning. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so they do have a small area you can kind of land by float plane, and they, they got some kind of raised wooden platforms you can walk on to get to some viewpoints. And uh, what the local guides told me was they did that because, you know, often in bear season and stuff, you don't want to be walking down on the ground. So it's kind of a quicker way for you to move around. They can keep an eye out for bears and stuff, other wildlife in the area. And, uh, yeah, the only way you can get in there is you kind of set that up with Parks Canada and stuff. They can have a guide that kind of takes you to that zone. 
And uh, but yeah, that's just its own one little stop, and then you can kind of fly in deeper. There's other lakes and mountain ranges, and uh, that go on forever. Uh, you can just go deeper and deeper. I think I spent eight hours flying around in a plane. I didn't even cat, you know, cover covered a small fraction of the whole area. So. The, uh, the, we're going to get into a lot of the legends and the stories surrounding uh, the Nahani Valley. But before we do, what what about it caught your attention? I mean, obviously you're in Canada, so it might be a little more obvious to you. Um, but still, it's, it seems to be very remote, and it seems to be one of these places that has a lot of, I guess I would call them hidden secrets that, um, that uh, not many people are aware of. Yeah, you know, for me, it was it was a total fluke. I, uh, when I was in university, I took a course in exploration history. And so they had a collection of these explorer journals in the library that you could kind of go through. And I found this one on, it, it just said something like, you know, the something like Mysteries of Nahani or something. I'm like, oh, what's that? And never even, didn't even know it was from Canada and opened it up. And the first thing I saw was a picture of Virginia Falls, which I looked at it and I was like, wow, that's in Canada? I've never even heard of this place. <laughs> And then as I kind of scanned through that and saw these amazing canyons and mountains, then the next thing it mentioned is, oh, yeah, this area is famously known as, you know, the Valley of Headless Men or Dead, Dead Man's Valley. And because of these two guys that were found with their heads missing. And I'm like, well, that's weird. I've never heard about that either. Yeah. And so that kind of, you know, hooked me in pretty good right off the bat. And uh, so from there, I tried to seek out, like, okay, where did these stories come from? And found the one or two books that a lot of people were referencing that were based off kind of, journals from explorers in the early 1900s, one of them being a guy named uh, R.M. Patterson, who basically explains his whole journey down the river. Uh, and while doing it, kind of retells the stories of that, which you know, we'll talk about later, the McLeod brothers that were found headless and a few of the other things that happened. And uh, so that that's what kind of hooked me in and got me going and made me really question, how have I not heard this anywhere else? And why does you know, no one else I know seem to even know about it either? Are there still indigenous people there? Yes, yeah. So uh, they're, the local First Nation group would be the Dene or the, the Decho. So they're kind of made up of a few different fractions, but uh, the Dene would kind of be the overarching uh, name you'd call all the groups up there. And uh, so when I went up to Nahani Butte, um, it's a small First Nation village of the Dene there, and, and they're, they'd be the Nahani Butte Dene. And there's only 90 people that live there right now. It's a very small community. And, uh, and so when I went there, I got to I chat with some of the elders trying, in terms of trying to get some of their oral histories uh, from the area to kind of learn more about it. But, uh, but yeah, no, there's, there's quite a few living up there still. And, and they actually can freely roam the, the, the land up there. So they have land rights to that area and, and protect a lot of the area. So even some areas where you're allowed to go into, um, for me to even do this documentary, I had to actually pitch the special First Nations as well as Parks Canada because the, the two of them together regulate the whole area in terms of who can go in and what you're doing and, and that sort of stuff. Do the Indigenous people that are there still uh, respect and maybe even in some cases fear some of the legends that have been handed down through the generations? And again, we'll talk about what those, what those are in a little bit, yeah. but do the, the Indigenous people still respect those stories? You know, in general, I, th- I think it's common to a lot of cultures. A lot of people I met either in the beginning, I found people who didn't know some of the legends or, or they've heard of them, uh, but they didn't want to talk about them or just said, oh, no, they you know, kind of blew it off. Like, oh, that's just some tale or whatever. Um, but, uh, but as I dug a little deeper and met more people, um, you know, they started telling me some of the stories and, and started confirming some other things I've read about or gave me some new things. And uh, But th- there's definitely a bit of a, level of trust you have to build because I think for them, they grew up with these stories and, and because of that, it might not seem as exciting and new to them, and but they also don't want to be exemplified by that. You know, there's obviously a lot more to them and their culture and, and you know, just the beauty of the areas anyone can see is stunning, and, but everyone just wants to talk about the headless uh, <laughs> mysteries. So, so I think for them, some of them are very adverse to wanting to talk about it and get into it. Um, but in terms of a, a fear, I didn't get a sense of a lot of fear, but some of them definitely had a, uh, a sense of some of the stories and opinions on uh, why certain things have happened and there, what sort of things could be in in the Nahani Valley. Um, yeah, it's, it's like, oh, look at that gorgeous waterfall. Forget about that. Let's talk about the two guys who were found without their heads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Mark McPherson, film, filmmaker and director, is with us. He's got an upcoming 
documentary. Mark, when you um, set out to start doing this, this is not just something you wanted to film. This is something you wanted to experience. Yeah, no, definitely. I, uh, what drove me to do this is, uh, I think, just an, an interest in reading about it and learning more about it. Um, it always kind of flew in some, you know, even story ideas I had for nonfiction. And one day I just thought, why am I not trying to make a documentary about this? It doesn't seem there's much out there. And it's a perfect excuse to kind of go out, learn some more things and experience the area firsthand. Let's talk a little bit about the logistics of making a documentary in such a remote place. Obviously, you don't have access to power, per se. I mean, you don't have, you know, uh, any of the comforts of what we would consider to be a studio or any of those things. How do you do this logistically? Uh, you know, the first step I did is I kind of reached out to some of the, uh, there's a couple outfitter companies that run river rafting tours uh, in the area for people that want to just kind of do the river experience and uh, found uh, one company I really clicked with and the father who owns the company had actually followed the footsteps of one of the main explorers. So they, they were very familiar with the area even beyond the rivers. So uh, talking to them, they kind of gave me a good sense of you know what the conditions were like, how remote it is. You know, basically, you're taking everything in with you and taking out. So you kind of have to plan ahead and get an idea of uh, the timelines I would need to not just kind of tour the area, but take some time to kind of explore some of the regions like Dead Man's Valley and some of the some of the other specific areas that relate to some of the legends and tales. Let's start talking about some of these legends and tales, because these are the things, although the, the area is absolutely stunningly beautiful, it's this mysterious stuff that kind of lurks behind the surface that make, takes it that extra level, makes it that, that much more interesting. And those stories and those legends go back, like I said earlier, into the uh, legends of the indigenous people there. I mean, sightings of, mm-hmm. uh, of creatures like dire wolves and a Bigfoot-like creature. Talk a little bit about those things. Yeah, so like the dire wolf, uh, you know, what what I've heard it being called is a wahila, which is like a bear dog mix. Um, And basically it was kind of this large animal that kind of um, the local Dene, I was told, were, you know, kind of looked at as a bit of a spirit creature and was kind of feared because of its ability to appear disappear at will. Um, A lot of people I interviewed present day, none of them really talked about it or seemed to know much of the stories i haven't got in that far yet but um um but that said there's a you know there's a few stories out there and and i know uh i believe it got kicked off from another uh historian i know from a university professor in the states uh he'd taken a group of students there they were studying i believe kind of some of the you know flora and fauna of the area and they had some experiences that made them believe there was something like this living in in the nahani they did and this is contemporary yeah, this would have been in the 60s, 1960s, okay. I'm told. So uh, I can't remember which uh, university he's with, but there's a gentleman named Frank, Frank Graves that brought some students up who uh, I, I, I'm told he, he had one of the first encounters that kind of kicked off these stories of the Wahila. But, um, but when you look at kind of the history of the Nain First Nations, there's a lot of other similar monster myths, so even in, with the, some of the Inuit myth a little bit more up north and in Greenland. So, so I definitely know that there's some legends and stories there with the First Nations uh, that I'd like to try to dig in a little bit deeper to go kind of beyond some of the more contemporary ones to kind of see if there is kind of a, you know, kind of a chain of, you know, multiple experiences that kind of make you feel like, okay, maybe there's a possibility of something like this living in this area. Is there any, are there any contemporary reports, and I say contemporary within the last, uh, you know, 50, maybe even 100 years, we'll say, of Bigfoot-type creatures? Because I know that those those reports are... uh, you know, before the the uh, introduction of Europeans to the area uh, from the native sure. folks there. But anything more contemporary than that that you're aware of? Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, when I was up last summer, I know I was talking to a couple of gentlemen uh, who basically, they were, they, were, they were my transportation guys across the river, but the one gentleman told me that his son had had a sighting of Bigfoot, him and his friend, right in their village in the Handy Butte. And uh, basically... They told me, yeah, it was kind of this tall, man-like creature, hair like a bear, but they knew it wasn't a bear, and they kind of explained it as as fast as they saw it. They kind of looked away for a second, looked back, and it was just gone. But it was just down, standing on this little mound kind of in the middle of their town. Uh, and it's a pretty quiet town, so it makes sense why a lot of other people wouldn't see it. Uh, it's not like a bustling area of people walking around a lot. Right. Everyone's either at home or at work. And like I said earlier, there's only 90 people living there. 
Um, and, and it seemed quite legitimate at uh, their claim on it. And, and being how well they know the area, there are things like black bears, there's buffalo in the area. Um, and the way they would just ha- see something in the corner, I go, oh, yeah, there's a black bear there, black bear there. It, you really got the sense that they knew it was something different than what they've seen. And, uh, and they also mentioned that they've, some of them have claimed to have seen uh, some kind of monster come out of the river, too, and the same thing disappeared, though they had a lot less description of that. As you sum up what you're going to be uh, putting into the documentary, how much of your effort is going to be put, going to be go into trying to maybe catch a glimpse of some of these creatures, or or are you going to more uh, focus on the stories while you show the natural beauty of the area? I think our focus is definitely going to be on capturing some of the stories uh, and the natural beauty of the area, uh, but also exploring a lot deeper mm-hmm. uh, the local Diné stories and like whether it's some of their myths and legends and stories to try to find a, uh, to add to the West, you know, the European stories that lead to a lot of the headless mysteries and stuff to try to kind of add more context to it and expand the story. Uh, but with that said, uh, yeah, definitely trying to go and film in these regions. So uh, we have permission actually to go in and film in Dead Man's Valley, which is actually a, kind of a, a classified area, like your average person can't go in there. It's closed to the public. Only the local Diné can go in there. Uh, but I was able to get permission for the sake of this documentary to kind of go in there and do some filming. And, and Dead Man's Valley is kind of one of the areas that a lot of these myths and legends kind of surround. And um, from what I've gathered from sort of some of the locals, some of that is it's also a, kind of an inhospitable area. The way the, the valley is, it tends to trap in a lot of cloud and fog. A lot of the times it's not as easy of a place to kind of travel through. So it's kind of natural in some ways you could understand why some might avoid or fear the area. But at the same time, when you, you know, you start hearing another story and another story and another story, you can't help but wonder, is there something about this place or something else about it? So our hopes of this documentary is to kind of go in there, uh, film it first person and try to capture the essence of the area and, and the place. Cause whether we catch any proof, I think, our goal is to try to give you a sense of what that place is like and to kind of give you a sense of, oh, you know, is there is something about this place that's special. Whether you, you can capture a spirit or a Wahila or a Bigfoot or, or figure out the clues to headless bodies, uh, I, I think the whole idea is to capture uh, an overall sense of the Nahani to feel like, you know, there's something, it, there is something mysterious and magical about this area. Now, we're not going to end up seeing, uh, like, headlines that say something like, uh, you know, four filmmakers went into the Nahani Valley <laughs> in, uh, you know, in, in the spring of 2021, and uh, five years later we found this film footage, and here it is. This is what happened to them, right? That's not what this is going to be about. I hope not, but that was what I always thought would make a great nonfiction movie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, some of the early uh, history that uh, led to some of these things that we're talking about, particularly the name, uh, the Valley of the Headless Men. Now, a big part of the story here, from what I understand, well, there's two things. There's the fur trading industry, and then there's the gold rush. Talk a little bit about that part of the history, which leads us into some of these stories. Yeah, so the basically the Valley of Headless Men didn't, it wasn't named that until the early 1900s. And so at that time you had, it was kind of a time period, the Hudson Bay Company had been up in, in the Northwest Territories and Yukon for quite a while. You already had the gold rush going on over in the Yukon. It hadn't quite hit over in this area yet, uh, but there was believed, a lot of people believed that there would be uh, gold and, and minerals in this area with all the mountains and other types of deposits. A lot of people thought, oh, this could be another spot. But fur train was the big thing of that area. So you, you already had an established group of fur traders in the area, as well as the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and then you had the local Diné and all the different First Nations groups within that, whether some were called the Nahani, some called the Satu, there's a, a number of different groups. And uh, so that that's kind of the back story of it, and which kind of led to the two famous brothers, Willie and Frank McLeod, who were the two that were discovered with their heads missing. They were both uh, basically Métis sons of a Scottish fur trader. And uh, and they'd grown up in the area. They were really, you know, they learned how to live off the land. They were probably more expert at it than a lot, you know, just as expert as the First Nations. And so that's why when they went missing for a while and then were found, 
their bodies found with the heads missing. A lot of people you know, were wondering about foul play or what else could have caused this, just because uh, they, they knew how to survive winters and live off the land out there if they ever did get stranded. I don't think there can be any um, hmm, doubt, I guess is the word. I don't think there can be any doubt that if uh, uh, two people uh, end up decapitated, there's probably some kind of foul play involved. Um, when they were found, they were found, I think, by an expedition that one of their brothers, maybe their younger brother, put together to try to find them because they had been missing. Um, how Do we know how they were found? Were they were they Were they posed? Did they look like they had met some type of tragic accident um what's the story what do we know about that yeah so with all good stories there's variations right but the the one that is not varied is the fact that their heads were missing and off um there's some stories that some well there's one version i read that said they were found both tied to a tree back to back with the heads missing that they could see from the river uh and then there's other stories i've heard where they were found kind of by uh, an old campfire and and to kind of give some back you know some context they were found a year after they went missing so they'd been dead for a long time when oh, their yeah. younger brother Char- charlie who went looking for him found them and the reason they waited so long is they just thought you know stuff happens when you're in the bush it was very common for people to go missing for months and then show up because maybe their boat capsized or they were you know lost some of their supplies and had to kind of wait till the weather got better to get back to you know whether it's fort simpson or some of the other more built up areas but when they found them, the one the one story is is that one of them was kind of sleeping under their you know sleeping bag or blankets, uh, dead with their head missing, as if they were killed in their sleep. And the other one looked like it was crawling toward their gun, which was a few yards away from them. They're kind of outstretched on their stomach, uh, with the head missing. And so that's why a lot of people thought foul play is there was a third gentleman believed to be with them, and uh, I believe his name was Bobby Weir. And uh, he was a guy that they had come across who basically uh, had some money and the means to kind of help them go back and go looking for this gold. And and so when Charlie found him, his theory was definitely that this guy Bobby Weir had done some foul play, that they must have discovered some gold and gold in the, the Nahani, and he basically killed him and took it. When you kill somebody for something like that, you know, I don't think you necessarily spend the time to cut their heads off. Um, that seems to be something that's trying to send a message to somebody. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's why you get so many different variations of the or different theories. So um, in, in the beginning, so the stories I've read is that they believed it was Bobby Weir in the beginning. that might have killed him. And then about a year after that, another expedition with the RCMP went up and found a third body who they just, They don't know if they proved it, but they just assumed it must have been the other guy. So then they thought, okay, well, then it wasn't him. Maybe they just all starved to death. And so uh, another theory was that um, maybe it was something like a Wahila or something that, you know, took the heads off and and killed them. The other theories were that they were dead and an animal scavenged for them and just took the heads. But the rest of the bodies weren't really touched. So some people had a problem with that explanation. Um, and then there's also a lot of tales about a kind of a, a very warrior-like mountain tribe called the Naha. And I've heard a few different names of these guys. Uh, some some have referred to just as the Nahani or, or that. So I don't know how much those stories get mixed. But the Naha were basically these warlike, uh, a warlike tribe that would come down and raid all the rest of the Dene. And they would, you know, rape and pillage. And they're a very violent group. And, and one thing that they were known to do sometimes is remove heads. So, as you mentioned, one theory that some people had is, well, maybe it's some of the local mountain tribe natives that have come down to kind of send a message to keep people away. Um, but on the flip side of that, the Naha were said to have kind of just mysteriously disappeared around the late 1800s, so just a little bit before that. So whether there were still some living around um, or not, that just kind of adds to the mystery even further. The Valley of the Headless Men. It doesn't get much more sinister sounding than that. No, <laughs> no. It it. Uh, you know, if I implore anyone to just look at a map of the area, and you, you'll see all the names. You got, you know, you got the Funeral Range and uh, lots of, uh, you know, Headless Creek. You know, you know, Dead Man Valley. And it's uh, they definitely paint a picture for a real nice family getaway. That's for sure. <laughs> now, in addition to these, the stories of. Um, tragedy i guess 
Uh, there's all there's also stories of uh, places where there was gold, this uh, gold nuggets the size of uh, goose eggs, and and um, you know amazing treasure. Uh, where did those stories come from? You know, that's one question I know I was asking a lot of the local Denain, and they they don't know. They a lot of them think that maybe those were stories of just some of the prospectors and stuff. Uh, the rumors were that the McLeods were seen to have had uh, maybe some nuggets, some smaller nuggets that were worth something. So they, they definitely found smaller veins where they had gold flecks, but they think they actually found some nuggets. Uh, there's also a story of another gentleman named uh, Martin Jorgensen, who was another prospector who uh, is probably 10 or 15 years after the whole McLeod thing. He, uh, set up his cabin just inside the, the barrier to Dead Man's Valley, which was, again, an area that the locals warned. You don't go in there. You stay away because it's cursed. Um, and in the beginning, he, he was seen kind of coming to town, looked like he had a little bit of money on him. Like he's, you know, he's buying more drinks and looked like he's doing well in the first year. And then he just kind of disappeared. And then when they went to look for him, uh, they found him with his cabin was completely burned down and then found his body off whether 80 or 100 yards, again, with his head missing, uh, dead as well, just mysteriously. And, and so that, again, further fueled this whole Valley of the Headless Man and, and whether this linked to gold and, and whether the gold actually exists or not. You mentioned uh, earlier talking about the natural beauty of the area and talked about the hot springs. And uh, another story that came from the prospectors that would – uh, go out in a uh, search of gold in the area was uh, a tropical-like paradise that was nestled in a valley somewhere where it, it, there was no snow on this area all year long. There were amazing animals that were very well-fed and care, taken care of, um, and it was basically a tropical paradise hidden in the middle of the Nah Nahani uh, Valley somewhere. Uh, what do we know about this? Yeah, so there's a number of stories about that. A lot of people have been trying to find those areas uh, over the years. Again, uh, a lot in the early 1900s. And, and so there's definitely, you know, for sure, there's definitely, you know, low microenvironments where that exists. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of areas you have there that have thermal hot springs uh, where you have the kind of the volcanic ground and it's leaching up calcium carbonate and stuff. So there are some areas you can go to uh, where you, it's, uh, if, I don't know if people are familiar with uh, the Banff hot springs. We have like the sulfur hot springs down in Alberta. They have their kind of version of that up there, but they have it on a larger scale is what some people think in certain areas. And yeah, some of the stories talk about there's more tropical like plants and, you know, rich in berries and stuff like that. And um, I know when I toured to the Honey National Park with the, uh, the pilot I was with, he, he said, oh yeah, when you're flying over, you can kind of see there's little areas, little valleys and stuff that seem to they have their own environment, and uh, you, you can see that it's richer in berries and things like that, and, and of course, that attracts some more of the animals and stuff like that. And so it's, it's, it's very varied all over, and, uh, and I believe that something like that could exist. I know even uh, my previous experience working in Scotland, there's a place on the western side of Scotland that has palm trees, and <laughs> it's like you don't have them anywhere else, but there's this one little town that has this little microenvironment that's just perfect for palm trees, and... Uh, it must have been brought over at some point, but it can support it. And uh, so in the Nahani, just hearing some of those stories, knowing what some other thermal hot springs are like, yeah, I totally believe it's in there. And, and there's a number of accounts of different groups, people kind of trekking through there, whether they're biologists or or fur traders or anyone going through that have said they found some of these areas that, uh, that stay warm even where it can melt the snow in the wintertime. And they also found, again, reports from some of these prospectors that would travel through this looking for gold. Uh, they said they saw prehistoric animals like uh, mastodons and other creatures that were long thought to be its extinct. Yeah, that, I've I've read a few of those stories too, and uh, fortunately, those ones I haven't been able to get a, uh, some of the local Dene to kind of acknowledge or or whether they have anything else. But the one thing that's definite when you go there, it's it's definitely rich with tons of different types of animals, and I think one of the theories behind a lot of these stories is that being that you know, when you, if someone was to look at a map, you know, when, you know, most, most people in Canada, you know, they live in the southern part of Canada, and even up north, they kind of live around this area because it is so rugged and remote. It's not really an area people naturally went into and lived. And, and even the local Dene, you know, they kind of traveled through and visited the areas during certain times of the year as it suited their needs, whether it was 
in summer or spring, whether they're collecting food for the winter or, you know, they kind of had their, their roots, they traveled. And so there's a lot of areas that, that are believed to have never been touched by man. And so a lot of people think that when you hear these stories of prehistoric creatures or, or strange animals that might have existed thousands of, years, thousands of years ago and not now, that if there was one area that they would probably end up at the end and, and be left alone, it would be in there. And, and it's the thought process for a lot of people thinking why they could potentially exist in there. There are we, we've just touched the surface. There are a lot of mysteries associated with this area. Plus, you're dealing with uh, you know very rugged terrain without any uh, comforts of what we would consider to be modern civilization. So the whole project is a very difficult one to undertake. What kind of answers do you think you're going to be able to come out with? Do you think you're going to be able to come out with any evidence or uh, proof that's going to move the needle one way or another uh, for any of these stories? Gee, uh, that that's the that's the tough question on that one. So, uh, I would love to, and yeah. uh, th- that would be fantastic to to do. I think you know, part of me would love to be able to just even get a sense of something, whether they capture something, whether it's some weird sounds or a flash or something, uh, would would be amazing to, yeah. to be able to capture. But uh, I think all in all, I, I think. The realist side of me says, you know, if we can just capture the essence of the area, I know some of the the local chiefs I've chatted with up there say there is something very magical about the Nahani, and, and you definitely get a feel for it when you're there. And um, that's what made me want to do a documentary of this. It's more kind of that first-person style bringing you along the journey. So it would be based around an expedition going through the area. Uh, of, of course, you can't replace being there first-person, but to try to do the best, job possible to try to capture some of these areas and get a sense of, you know, the dark, you know, valleys or, you know, what, even what the river is like, it, you know, it's, it's pretty dangerous in a lot of sections. Uh, and, and the rugged terrain, I, I feel like when you piece all those things together, um, sometimes you can just get a sense whether you experience something directly or not that of the possibilities of what could be there. And, and I, I think that's ideally what I'd like to be able to add to this is, you know, kind of, give people just keep that curiosity sparked and, and maybe even come to some potential answers or, or even more links as uh, like I said, very few people know of the, some of the Diné oral histories that could link. And you read some of the European ones and they kind of offhand mentioned that, Oh yeah, for hundreds of thousands of years, the Diné have had these tales of this and this and this, but they, ne- they never go into it specifically. So uh, for me, I feel like that's a big, big part of it that can maybe help get, get some more answers or, or show some more links of something that's been going on here for centuries. What um, appeals to you more? And maybe it's equal, but uh, there's the mystery side of all this, and then there's the lost gold side of all this. Lost gold has a great big shiny appeal in one, one way. <laughs> uh, what are you more interested in, or is it both? I mean, hey, if I trip on a gold nugget, I, I, I'm not going to lie, I'd be excited, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but definitely for me, the passion's the mystery. I mean, like I said, the first thing that hooked me, uh, that and the natural beauty. I mean, we're definitely going to be able to capture that. I mean, the place looks stunning and uh, it looks like any super National Geographic film. To be able to go to an area like that is a win already. But uh, yeah, to explore the mysteries, um, I think just just to you know, find any clues or small glimpses, like just give us a, a taste of you know another place, another time, another culture. Uh, that's really what I'm hoping to capture here in this uh, to give people a, a taste of. What's your team going to be made up of? I mean, what do you need in your group of explorers to get this job done? Uh, well, we're definitely keeping it small, being that uh, you have to fly in and out what you need with you. You can't. You can only bring so much stuff in terms of gear and, and people uh, as the logistics just kind of scale from there. Um, so definitely we have our river expedition team uh, that we've we've got connected up and, uh, and they uh, have experience as well going into some areas, including dead man's Valley. They have some, you know, familiarity of the land, um, as well. will be kind of, we'll have our people that aren't, aren't directly on expedition, but a lot of people that were meeting in the, you know, the local first nations and stuff kind of getting their opinions and advice on things. And, and then of course, uh, I have another, uh, gentleman, uh, with me, uh, Dax, Justin, who's kind of an adventure photographer, uh, he, he's also like a national geographic guy, a Canon, uh, photographer, but his, his whole thing is storytelling and, and capturing things, uh, out 
out out in nature. And so he's kind of another guy who's used to working in the elements. And uh, and then I thought it'd be perfect for the team and and to kind of be the the face to kind of lead us through. He he almost looks like an Indiana Jones guy if you ever see pictures of him. He's got the hat and the and he's used to living out in the bush and spending the time just kind of exploring to capture that perfect picture and then and I'll be with him you know working the cameras and the drones and and uh, and that is we'll be keeping our gear small but we still want to be able to have the ability to capture some of those uh, nice shots and perspectives and and uh, if we can't walk in all the way at least send a drone in to help explore a little further and uh, in the amount of time we can spend there yeah and uh, when is the principal filming going to take place i mean you've done some exploring there already you've done some overview stuff and again you've put together a trailer that is absolutely stunning um but the next part of this project when is that going to take place uh we don't have specific dates if we're aiming for next year in the summer so summer, originally okay. we were what we did uh filming last summer we we're hoping for this year but of course covid kind of throws some curveballs in that yeah um, but we're still in the process of getting some of our financing in and attracting broadcasters uh, just because due to the logistics of going out there to film for, you know, it'll, it'll take a couple of weeks to, to spend some real time in these areas and actually to try to capture something. You know, we don't want to just hang out at a place for an hour and, and be like, all right, we've been here. Yeah, you know, yeah. We definitely want to try to go in there, spend some time, see what we can capture. Um, and, and so, yeah, the only time you can really run on the rivers up there is between June to September because rest of the year, either the rapids are too dangerous or it's just too cold to get around. Because even in late August, the weather starts to change pretty quick up there, especially in the mountains. Uh, you can get some pretty extreme temperatures. So uh, for the sake of our expedition, we'd probably be looking at late summer uh, next year is when we'd like to be up there to, to do the expedition and film. You know, um, Canada is home to some pretty interesting mysteries, including and certainly not least of which is the Oak Island mystery, which you know, anybody who watches the History Channel here in the United States is familiar with the, the Curse of Oak Island series, which I think is going into the seventh or eighth season, and that's going to that's, yeah. that's going to debut here right along. And in fact, it's been one of my favorite shows, and that mystery has been one of my favorite mysteries. Um, how does uh, the Nahane Valley rank in terms of your estimation of of Canada's natural mysterious treasures? You know, out of the the ones I know of, obviously I'm biased because I've dug a lot deeper in this one, but I think the Nahani would be number one. And I would say that just because uh, not only do you have multiple stories of different people being found headless, you got the areas stunning between the waterfalls. There's um, there's another crazy area called the Tufa Mound, which is this 10,000-year-old, basically calcium carbonate built up from the hot springs. It looks almost like something off the moon. Oh, kind of lunar landscape. I mean, the the place itself just screen just looks mysterious and foreign, and gives you so much variety in one area. And then you throw in, yeah, stories of Wahilas or Bigfoot or other potential things. It just feels like there's so many different stories in one little area. Granted, it's not a little area, uh, funny enough, but uh, it just feels like it's got so much. And then, yeah, you throw in the gold and all these other things. So. It just feels like you get a lot of bang for your buck in that in that area, and uh, on top of it, uh, just being a stunning, beautiful area. You're going to uh, do your principal filming next summer. That's the plan. Um, then, how long from that point until you believe that you'll be able to actually release the film? Uh, if we get it shot next summer, uh, I think then it would be by the end of the year, start of the the following year. So I guess yeah, it makes it January 2022. So. Uh, it would really depend a lot on uh, the broadcast or distributor we end up working with. Some right. of them, um, we, we've kind of looked at this as you kind of got two ways you could do it. You could either do one longer form kind of documentary film or another thing we've been trying to, pers- we think would be a better way is to kind of make a series out of it, being that there's so many stories and sub-stories mm-hmm. that we thought um, it would it'd be a great kind of running series just to kind of tackle all the different uh, characters and, and stories and legends and tales that you could definitely easily fill a dozen episodes, if not a little bit more, uh, depending how much more research and, and support we can get on it. So we know we can get enough beautiful visuals to fill up time, but it's, uh, it's really uh, collecting all those stories from some of the elders uh, who are still there that still know some of these stories. There's a lot of the younger uh, Dene aren't as familiar with them. So, uh, so yeah, that would be the ideal is, uh, late 2021, early 2022. 
So that's you've got basically your whole next 18 months or so figured out and planned. You're going to be very, very busy. Um, but people who want to keep track of this project so they're aware, they're interested in what you have to say about it, and they're aware of when it's released and all that, what's the best way for them to do that? You know, I would say the best way is uh, we have the Secrets in the Handy Facebook page, so we post everything on there, or you can go to the Secrets in the Handy YouTube channel. So we post post all the you know little teasers or little stories there uh we're still in the process of when i was up there last year i got about three hours of oral histories but all in dene so we're still getting it translated mm-hmm. so we're still waiting to hear what other stories we got uh besides the ones in english and uh and so those would be the best locations where we'll put updates on our expedition and where we're at and and uh and kind of keep people in the loop that's great. Uh, Mark, thanks for being here tonight, and thanks for sharing this with us, and thanks for introducing us to a place that uh, is no no less than magical. It's really interesting just in its natural beauty, and I can't wait until you put all these stories together in your film and we can watch that and, and get a real sense of the uniqueness of the Nahani Valley. So, again, thanks for be- being here tonight. Keep us informed as to how the project's going. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, JV. I really appreciate uh, your time as well tonight, and it was great to get to chat with you. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.